superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The question is, how's it going to go? This is the Rich Eisen Show. Live from the Rich Eisen Show studio in Los Angeles. We're kind of like the number one overall pick. The Cincinnati Bengals select Rich Eisen, Chris Brockman, Mike Del Tufo. I'm into it. I don't know about that. The Rich Eisen Show. And now, sitting in for Rich, here's Dan Schwartzman. Saints 23, third and three, booking the gun. Shotgun snap, fakes the handoff, line drive throw, deflected, and intercepted on the far side. 20, 10, 5, touchdown! Took it in. It was Nick Needham who got it on the ricochet. The ball deflected, and Needham takes it the other way on a pick six. And the Dolphins on top, six to nothing. I mean, that's a terrible feeling, throwing a pick six, you know, in your debut. Uh, I don't even, I've thrown one pick six in my life, so that was, that sucks, so that's, that's my second one, so, that's, a, that's not what you want, I mean, I don't have a good answer for you on that one, it sucks, just gotta forget about it, and I did, you know, I, it was a nightmare, went to the sideline and then just com- completely got it out of my mind, because that's what I gotta do, honestly, so, I forgot about it. Wow, where do you start with that one? First off, that's Kevin Harlan with a call on Westwood One, Monday Night Football, Dolphins, 20-3 to win. Over the New Orleans Saints, the rest of that, Ian Book talking about that pick six. First quarter action, not a good start for him to his NFL debut. Dan Schwartzman in for Rich Eisen, the Rich Eisen Show. Catch us on Odyssey app and odyssey.com. If you want to be a part of this show, 844-204-RICH, 844-204-7424. Hit us up on Twitter, at Rich Eisen Show. And wow, I'm going to start the show off by tooting my own horn. I said, uh... Not a lot of points going to be happening in this one, right? And I said, you take the Dolphins on this one. And boy, was I correct. But poor Ian Book looked absolutely terrible. Now, to be fair, he's a rookie quarterback making his NFL debut. He was kind of thrust into the situation due to injuries and COVID. He is technically the fourth-string quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, and uh, he played like a fourth-string quarterback in that game, ran for his life, eight sacks by that ferocious Miami Dolphins defense. But, man, that was ugly. That was a brutal NFL game. That was not a lot of fun to watch unless you're a Miami Dolphins fan. But boy, oh boy, poor Ian Book. I actually felt bad for the guy. I really did. 
Because to start the game off and to start your NFL career off with a pick six is kind of embarrassing. But there is something about what you just heard from me in book there that's a little, I think, cause for pause. And I saw this yesterday because I watched the post game and I watched him talking after the loss. And while he's trying to say the right things, and quarterbacks always try to say the right things, and in today's world, athletes are so fearful about saying the wrong thing that it's a lot of cliches and thing, but he doesn't sound very confident. You know, and we're going to highlight that a bit more here because I noticed that yesterday, and you heard that there when he talked about starting his career off with the pick six. Is he seemingly like a soft-spoken type of guy? And when you're the quarterback at Notre Dame, which he was, that's a big deal. Like, you're the big man on campus, right? That's a national position. What I mean by that is, if you're the quarterback at, like, Utah State, it's not as big a deal to tell people that, you know, compared to I'm the quarterback at Notre Dame. That's a really big deal. That is a prestigious position. So you kind of expect a guy with more moxie, more confidence, more attitude, right? Big man on campus, leather varsity jacket type of thing. Maybe I'm thinking back to Rudy or something here, but you get my drift. It's You think there's a guy there that when the camera's on him or the mic's in front of him, he exhumes confidence. Like you hear me, you're like, ooh, yeah, I'm like living by every word he says. And even coming off a bad situation as that game was for him yesterday, Man, he's given me a lot of confidence. Take a listen to Ian Book a little bit more. You'll you'll hear what I'm trying to tell you here. You'll you'll hear just how he doesn't seem to have that confident sounding tone. Take a listen. You know, first of all, you know, during the game, I was having fun. You know, I wanted to go out there and, and and bring energy. I thought I could have played a little bit faster. You know, obviously doing some thinking for the first time being out there and you just learn so much from actually getting, you know, from, from for playing. And uh, I was talking with Blake on the sideline, like, so much to improve on, excited to, to just get better. And once you're out there playing, it's like, man, you know, I learned a lot already. So that's a pretty cool feeling. I'm excited about that. And um, it's about moving on. You know, it's not, not don't hang your head and didn't go our way tonight. And, uh, I, I mean, I had fun being out there. It didn't, obviously didn't go our way, but. I was out there trying to bring energy and, um, you know, stay confident out there and just lead those guys while I was trying to do the whole night. There wasn't much energy there. Was there? <laughs> I like he says, I was trying to bring energy. Okay, I get that, but there wasn't much energy there. Eight Miami sacks. Eight <laughs> Miami sacks. You know, first of all, you know, during the game, I was having fun. <laughs> I don't think you're having a lot of fun running around for your life there. Poor guy. He really was running around for his life. That offensive line wasn't giving him much help. And you got to give the Dolphins some credit, too, by the way. I mean, their strategy was this. Ian Book's going to beat us, right? We're not letting Alvin Kamara beat us. We'll stack the line against Alvin Kamara, and if Ian Book beats us with his arm, great. Congratulations. Hats off to him. Great defensive strategy because Ian Book was not going to beat them yesterday. But the whole thing about the confidence thing was Ian Book didn't play with a lot of confidence. Again, it's a rookie making his NFL debut. I get that, but that's still not an excuse. You have to play with a bit more confidence there. Like, you have to show that moxie out there. 
And I think his teammates could tell. They could sense that he was not confident. And I think there's that, you know, there's... I guess the terminology would be, you know, when you're hearing the footsteps of defensive linemen continuously coming at you, it does take a toll on your psyche. And as that game wore on, and as I tried to keep my eyelids open, because it was a brutal game to watch, it must have been more and more, in his case, hearing phantom footsteps, losing the confidence, not trusting the offensive line to give him time, His receivers weren't really getting a lot of separation anyway because the creme de la creme of receivers on that team were just not playing. It was a bad situation overall and probably a bad situation to thrust the poor kid into. But I don't think there was a lot of confidence shown by Ian Book making his first NFL start. And I was watching the body language on the sideline as well. And look, I don't know. I don't think he's a rah-rah type of guy anyway. But I don't think he was, and maybe he's trying to figure out his place on that team. All right, you know, I'll bring you in here. But, like, I, I don't know if maybe he's trying to figure out his place on that team. It's hard to try to be a leader when you're a rookie making your NFL debut. But did you think that uh, there was much confidence in terms of his play and I think his demeanor throughout that game? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. I mean, and, and why didn't the Saints figure this out at the Combine when they interviewed this guy I mean, and listened to him? He's uncertain in his. In his sound bites, uh, eight sacks. It doesn't know the rules of the game. As soon as you get out of the pocket, you can throw the ball out of bounds as long as it crosses the line of scrimmage. Doesn't he know that? You know, I think it all goes out the window when you're actually out there. You know, I think that's the case here with Ian Book. Is it all goes okay? Out the yeah, window. I'll, I'll give it to you the first maybe three times, but after that, doesn't the coaches say, "Hey, just throw it out of bounds." But you know what, though, Art, it's it's easy enough for think for us to think that. But we've watched other quarterbacks over time, right? Like, look at a Brett Favre, for instance. How many times have we watched Brett Favre in his career? Out of those two hundred and some odd interceptions he throws, he threw, and we go, "What are you doing? Like, what are you seeing out there? Why would you throw across the field? Or, as you said, just throw it out of bounds, right?" So I think it's something where, for us watching, it's easy enough to say, "What are you doing?" But in that split-second moment, I guess, for some of these guys, the game hasn't slowed down to where it's something they think about. You know, for Aaron Rodgers, the guy always makes right decisions, right? Very rarely do you watch a Packers game and you say to yourself, man, Aaron Rodgers made a bad decision there. That's a bad throw. Why would he do that? He's got four interceptions this whole year. He's got 93 in his entire career compared to 445 touchdowns. The guy just doesn't turn the ball over. He hasn't had a double-digit interception season art, I think, in like 10 years. It's it's utterly fantastic. But he's different. He's like a different breed, right? His football IQ is probably higher than anybody else. For other guys, we sit there and we say, why would you make that throw? And they probably say the same thing a split second after they let the ball go, thinking, man, I've been in this league a long time. Why am I making that throw? And for an Ian Book, I guess the expectation is, why would we expect him to throw it away when... The guy is trying to figure out what the heck's going on around him. He's probably still trying to figure out the playbook. He's still trying to figure out what his role is. He's still trying to figure out where his receivers are or are supposed to be. I mean, look, you got to process a lot as a young quarterback in the NFL. That's why pretty much every rookie quarterback struggles. But then you throw in the fact of 
how many days did he have of taking first team reps? Three, four days, maybe? Okay, possibly. There's always that cloud hanging over of maybe Taysom, Taysom Hill or Trevor Simeon do come back before kickoff. So maybe that was kind of playing a role in this as well. And then, of course, it's just the whole, I can't believe I'm playing in an NFL stadium. I'm looking through my face mask across the line of scrimmage, and those are actual NFL players trying to rip my head off. Uh, the guy played at Notre Dame. I mean, it, it's almost, almost NFL-like. I mean, no, the, the you, stadiums yeah, are packed wait, 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 every Art, game. Art, Art, did you see that statistic, though, that that is 24 straight losses for Notre Dame quarterbacks? Isn't that crazy? Deshaun Kaiser was like 0 for 15. Wow, wow. Jimmy Clausen, I think, had the last win for a Notre Dame quarterback in like 2010. Notre Dame quarterbacks are like... USC quarterbacks. Yeah. Not a high success rate. Same with Ohio State You know about USC quarterbacks. Yeah, they're not. I do with Mark Sanchez. The and Sanchez. Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold. Yeah, you're right. Jets are 0 for 2 in that department. That last time they probably ever drafted a USC quarterback. Ohio State quarterbacks have that reputation as well. When's the last great Notre Dame quarterback that came out? That uh, that amounted to something, right? Joe Montana. Again, Notre Dame quarterbacks have lost 24 straight starts. Ian Book was number 24. Think about that. So it's not exactly a football factory of quarterback talent coming out of there where we should have expectations that they step into the NFL and become stars. And they're probably overdrafted because they did play at Notre Dame. Deshaun Kaiser was, what, a second-round draft pick? Jimmy Clausen was a second-round draft pick. Brady Quinn was a first-round draft pick. And Ian Book was a fourth-round draft pick. And I think Ian Book's career is going to be probably similar to the guys I just mentioned. Nothing told me yesterday. I never, look, I watched Ian Book in college, right? I watched Notre Dame. They're all on NBC. I watch Notre Dame football regularly. And honestly, I, I thought of Ian Book as a good college quarterback. That's it, a good college quarterback. I know he was in the Heisman discussion last year, but what the heck does that mean? Nothing. Just because you're a good college quarterback, frankly, has no bearing on if you can make it in the NFL. More people knew who, know who, knew who Ian Book was coming out of Notre Dame than Zach Wilson coming out of BYU until pro days, right? Who's Zach Wilson? You heard the whispers, but Ian Book you saw every single week on national television. So you knew who he was. You knew he was a good college quarterback. But I watched it. I never thought, oh, yeah, I see NFL talent there. Never saw the arm talent. Never really saw great athletic ability. Never thought of Ian Book as a guy that should even be a fourth-round draft selection. I never did. I'm not just saying that now based on the fact he had a horrendous NFL starting debut yesterday. I'm just saying that. Because I never thought he was a guy that would move on to the NFL. Nice career at Notre Dame. Get a good education. Get a good job. Make some money in life. And tell people you quarterback Notre Dame. That's how I always. That's how I viewed it. Really never thought of him as a guy that would step up into this league. So when I saw the Saints drafted Ian Book in the fourth round, I thought, why? And then, look, I'm not going to base a guy's entire career on one start. But boy, that was a heck of a start. Not in a good way. Dan Schwartzman in for Rich Eisen, the Rich Eisen Show, 844-204-RICH, 844-204-7424. It was ugly. But here's the other problem I had with that. All right, the defense for the Saints played well, not great, not as great as they did the week before. 
when they shut out Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 9-0. But you have to admit, though, that for as bad as Ian Book was, he really got no help. Offensive line was terrible, right? I mean, Dolphins were in the backfield constantly. Ian Book was getting harassed. We could talk about should he have thrown the ball away, especially when he's out of the pocket. But why was he out of the pocket? It's because he's running for his life. Receivers weren't getting open. Alvin Kamara didn't do much. I don't think the play calling was great, although they were hamstrung by the fact that the Dolphins were clearly playing the run, as they should, saying Ian Book's going to either beat us or that's what it's going to be. So overall, though, I think it was just a terrible effort by the offense, and Ian Book, to a point, was hung out to dry. And that's why after the game, Sean Payne pretty much said you can't base any decisions or judge anything when it comes to Ian Book just on that. Now, he's being kind because if you're going to judge anything on what we saw, you're going to say Ian Book's not an NFL talent, and why is he on the Saints? But on the other hand, it's fair to a point because they were so decimated by injuries and COVID that who was playing with him there? And on social media, people are saying, you know, it's kind of, you know, what are you watching here? You're watching a Saints team with a bunch of guys that you don't recognize for the most part, names you don't recognize, playing in an NFL game, and they could have gotten the poor kid killed. That's how bad it was. And eight by the way, we Miami had- Zacks. <laughs> eight Miami Zacks. <laughs> could have been more, too, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Because think about that last interception, Art, that he threw, right? And he had no choice. It was a fourth down play. Jalen Phillips almost had him for that ninth sack. He was so shocked he was in that backfield so quickly, he kind of overshot Ian Buck. Well, we have who the play. I can play. To the right. We have you the have play. It? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's play that. That was unbelievable. Here's the play. Jalen Phillips so quickly in the backfield, and poor Ian Book had no choice but to throw it anywhere to try to complete a pass on fourth down. Fourth and nine, 40 of Miami. In the shotgun is Book. There's the snap. Drops back. The blitz up the middle. He avoids the rush. He's on the sideline. He stops. He cocks his arm. He throws down, and it's a pass picked off at the 25. Picked off on the near sideline by Jones. Cuts to the middle of the field. Runs along the 30 laterally and is taken down at the 33 of the... Miami Dolphins and a second interception thrown by rookie quarterback Ian Book of New Orleans. And that will do it. With 2.51 to go, the Dolphins will take over, leading by 17. And New Orleans out of timeouts. Kevin Harlan again, courtesy of Westwood One. Uh, There you have it. Jalen Phillips is so fast in that backfield that he literally just kind of overshot Ian Book to a point who had to roll to the right. And as he's rolling and and being chased and there's nowhere to throw the ball, because again, no Saints receivers were really getting open. Like On that instance, you could say, what's he seeing? But look, he sees four Dolphins on one Saint and he's got to throw it away because it's a fourth and nine and he can't at that point run to get the first down. You know, first of all, you know, during the game, I was having fun. Yeah, I'm sure he did have fun. Didn't look like he was having fun out there and didn't look like he was having fun on that sideline either. We got to get into the Dolphins next, though. Seven losses straight at one point this season and now seven straight wins as well. First team in NFL history to do that in the same season. A lot of people, though, disparaging what the Dolphins have done. In fact, calling them frauds. Is that fair or not? 
got a full show today. Dan Schwartzman sitting in for Rich Eisen. It is The Rich Eisen Show. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Show Dan Schwartzman in for Rich. Look at that Monday night football game. Wow. 20 to 3 Dolphins knocking off the Saints. I want to look at the Dolphins here, okay? Because give them some credit. They did win this game. They've now won seven in a row. They've also, by the way, become the first team in history to lose seven in a row and win seven in a row in the same season. Talk about up and down, right? They were one in seven at one point. Because remember, First game of the season, they beat the New England Patriots, and then they lose seven in a row. They're one in seven, and people are saying, maybe it's time to get rid of Brian Flores. You know, maybe the experiment hasn't worked. Last year, there were some good things, but boy, at one in seven, the message doesn't seem to be resonating with the players. Well, here we are, seven wins later. They're eight and seven. Hold their playoff destiny in their hand. They win their next two, although very difficult games on that schedule. They win their next two. They're going to get into the playoffs, but it would take winning at the Titans and it would take winning over the Patriots at home to do so. Not exactly Swiss cheese teams, and they have been playing a very, very, very weak schedule as of late. But I read people saying on social media how the Dolphins are frauds. What a fraudulent team. Oh, seven straight wins, but look who they're playing. But don't you have to have have high expectations for a team to call them frauds? Like, don't you have to think a team's good to then say they're frauds? What's so fraudulent about a team that's a bit better than a bunch of bad teams are beating up on? I don't know if I'd call them frauds. I don't understand. They're eight and seven, right, Miami Dolphins? Yeah. Yeah. How did they jump ahead of the Raiders when the Raiders beat them? It's I don't a strange, understand that. It's a strange situation. It, it's uh, honestly... They're the, number seven. Miami's yeah. number seven, right? Miami is number seven, and the Raiders have now dropped uh, to number 10. What's up with which that? Which is insane. Yeah, Miami is seven. They're the top of the tiebreakers. They win the tiebreaker over the LA Chargers because of best win percentage in common games. They win the tiebreaker over Baltimore based on best win percentage in conference games. And the division tiiebreak was initially used to eliminate Las Vegas. What? Which I don't what? understand what that means. 
I don't understand what that means. Now, LA, the Chargers win the tiebreaker over Vegas based on head-to-head win percentage. Very strange formula the NFL has used to figure out who wins based it, on it makes no sense. records. It doesn't make much sense. You're right. The Dolphins lost to the Raiders earlier this year as part of that seven-game losing streak. But here's the thing. Again, how are they a fraudulent team? Like, what are your expectations of the Miami Dolphins where you think people would, you know, people would call them frauds? I know. I saw the Raider and Dolphin game. The Dolphins have a really good defense. They have a very good defense, but people never had confidence in Tua Tagovailoa, who, by the way, is, is I, I think he played pretty well. You know, I think he's limited to a point, but I think he's not bad. He's got very good footwork. He's seeing the field a lot better now than he has before. He's in year number two. He's a lot more confident out there on the field. You know, I don't know if the Dolphins are going to be shopping for a quarterback. It's perfectly fine to say that Tua Tagovailoa deserves a year three. You have to give him that third year. If you're going to draft a guy fifth overall, you have to at least give him three years as a starting quarterback in the NFL before you decide he either has it or he doesn't have it. But look, this is who the Dolphins have beaten in this seven-game winning streak. The Texans, not a good team. They beat the Ravens, who we thought were a good team at that point. I think they were 6-2 and two when that game occurred. Well, they're not a very good team. Right? I mean, think about it. The Baltimore Ravens have fallen back to earth. They may not make the playoffs. They beat the New York Jets not once but twice. And we know the Jets aren't a good team. They knocked off the Panthers, another bad team. They beat the Giants, a bad team. And they just beat a Saints team with their fourth-string quarterback. So, again, what are the fraudulent thoughts here? I I don't know. They're beating teams they should be beating. Maybe the Ravens game, you could say, oh, that's a good win. Besides that, every one of those games, it's okay. Who'd they beat? This is the same Dolphins team that lost to the Jaguars and the Falcons this year. They lost to the Buccaneers expected. They lost to the Raiders. I kind of expect that. I think the Raiders at that time, at least, obviously the roster's kind of gone through a overhaul, not by their choice, really. But the Raiders at that time were a better team, I think, talent-wise. The Bills, they lost to not once but twice. Buffalo's a better team. Colts are a better team. Buccaneers are a better team. So the Dolphins are who their schedule says they are, right? They're a decent team. They have a good defense. Their offense comes to play once in a while. They're nothing spectacular. They're not going to win a Super Bowl. I honestly don't think they're going to make the playoffs because I don't think they're going to win the last two games. I don't think they're going to knock off both the Tennessee Titans on the road and the Patriots at home. I don't see it happening. The Patriots are going to be playing for something in that game. They're going to be playing for seeding. So don't expect the uh, Miami Dolphins to make the postseason, and then you're going to sit there and say, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the Dolphins are in. They don't deserve, they don't deserve to be in. You get a schedule, and you play the schedule. This is a team that's minus 10 when it comes to points for and points against. So I'm not under the illusion that it's a good team by any stretch of the imagination. Don't get me wrong. But give Brian Flores credit, right? They were 1-7. in They could have just folded. They could have said our season's over. How many 1-7 in teams have come back to make the postseason? Probably none. Right? Probably none. So I, I just, uh, I have to be honest, I kind of want to see it because it would be 
quite the accomplishment if that does happen. Right? It's 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 like the bearded lady at the circus. Art, think about it. How cool would it be to see a team that was one in seven, thought to be dead halfway through an NFL season? Which the Raiders beat. Which <laughs> you're never gonna get over this, are you? No. <laughs> By the way, watching the Raiders, I don't think playoff team either. I hate to tell you this. There's still hope. There's still hope. I, I still we I beat Indy this week, and there's still hope. Yeah, and I picked the right five numbers in Powerball, and I win four hundred million dollars. Art. <laughs> there's always hope. You're absolutely correct. Dolphins fans are hoping too that they can beat Tennessee and they can beat the Patriots and get into the postseason. And be the first team ever, I guess, to be 1-7 in and make the playoffs. Emmanuel Ogba, after the game, talking to Westwood 1. Take a listen. It's, it's, you know, obviously it's good to hear from guys after big wins. Here's Emmanuel Ogba. All right, we are lucky enough to have one of the great defensive players in the NFL with us. With a sack tonight, one of eight for this team, Emmanuel Ogba. Your defense tonight read everything, it seems like, Emmanuel that that New Orleans team was doing. You were really dialed in. Oh, yes, sir. Um, Coach had a great game plan for us, and we just came out and just executed the game plan and uh, just put it in the right position to make plays, and that's what we did today. Emmanuel, talk to me about the flexibility of your defense. So many different guys that can get after the quarterback, what you do on the back end. Is that the key to Brian, Brian Flores' scheme is to have so many different guys that can play different roles? Oh, yeah, different guy. You got to be versatile to play in this defense, you know. Like me, I got to play inside, outside, whatever they need me to do, I can do it. But definitely different guys on the team that can do both, too. Uh, that's that's the special team we have here. Emmanuel, you guys are the first team in NFL history to have lost seven games in a row and come back and won seven games in a row. When you're one at seven, what goes on in the locker room to keep your guys locked in to be able to turn this around as you have? Uh, we just kept on fighting. Uh, no no guys was down. We just kept on working. We just kept on grinding through it. People counted us out. We just kept on going. And uh, and we knew that we knew it was going to turn around, and we just kept going. Well, the number one defense in this seven-game winning streak during this streak has been that of you, Emmanuel, and your defense, number one in sacks, number two in total defense, number one red zone defense, number two in points allowed you guys have really tightened the screws congratulations thank you sir i appreciate it you gotta keep working kevin harlan and kurt warner talking to emmanuel agba defensive end of the miami dolphins post game on westwood one and uh, agba's been really good for them came over uh, last year from kansas city had spent his first three years in the league uh, with cleveland kind of a bust when he came out from oklahoma state he was a high second round pick i think he was the first pick of the second round back in 2016. Since getting to Miami last year, nine sacks last year. Now he's got nine sacks this year with a couple of games to go. Probably going to hit double digits. He's been a good piece for them. 18 sacks so far in 31 games for Emmanuel Ogba. And yesterday, he was an absolute beast out there. Two sacks for Ogba. He had three quarterback hits. uh, Had a tackle for loss as well. And was a dominating presence one of many, by the way, on that defensive front. You know, first Miami of all, Dolphins. you know, during the game, I was having fun. He was having fun being chased by Emmanuel Agba all over the place. How about this number? 14 quarterback hits by the Dolphins on Ian Buck. 14. 
That's a lot. Got to feel for the guy there a little bit. 14 times he got hit. Eight times he went down. You know, Miami's defense can take him and make things interesting down the stretch here. Right? I don't think Tennessee's now going to be overlooking the Dolphins. I definitely don't think the New England Patriots are going to be overlooking the Dolphins in week number 18, especially considering they lost the Dolphins in week one. And there's a connection between Brian Flores and Bill Belichick. Flores worked for Belichick. It's his mentor. That was just, I'll tell you, great effort by the Dolphins. Congratulations to them. Give them a lot of credit. They they got the job done. They did what they had to do. It wasn't pretty. Definitely wasn't pretty. They didn't score, uh, you know, much on offense, right? They had uh, one touchdown from Tagovailoa to Jalen Waddell. Besides that, they had the interception for a touchdown from Nick Needham. Two field goals from Jason Sanders. It wasn't pretty by any stretch, and that's why. I mean, look, the Dolphins aren't going to win games pretty because they're not good enough to do so. But very quietly, Jalen Waddell has had a heck of a rookie season. The sixth overall pick out of Alabama, who, by the way, isn't out of Alabama. Did you see that after the game, Art, how all the Alabama guys kind of got together? Mark Ingram, Jalen Waddell, Tua Tagovailoa, uh, a couple other guys as well. Remember, Alvin Kamara, by the way, did start his college career at Alabama before he transferred to Tennessee. It's like a reunion every week for the Alabama guys, I know. So many of them. Jeez. So many of them. But my favorite uh, play was Waddle's Waddle. When he scored the yeah. touchdown. <laughs> I did like that. That was good. <laughs> Waddle's Waddle. <laughs> I saw that. I go, that's pretty good. You know what? Use your name to your advantage, right? Absolutely. Your name's Waddle. Waddle around. Why not? Well, and, and, and the reps can't throw a flag because that's his name. You know, it's that's his name. Waddle. Honestly, I don't have a problem with players showing uh, emotion. I don't have a problem with players showing personality i know that a lot of the old school get off my lawn type folks out there are always like oh you score a touchdown do what barry standards did just hand it right to the official what are you doing showing up the opponent nah you know what it's the younger generation today it's the millennials everybody likes to show off here and there I don't have a problem with it. I really don't. I used to, honestly, to be honest with you, Art, I used to be more like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that guy's doing that. I'm going to show my age, okay? Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to watch Billy White Shoes Johnson, and he used to do that dance after, like, every catch almost, and, and yeah. especially after every uh, touchdown. He used to do that dance, and I used to do that dance in the, in the, back, in the, the backyard. You did? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the that Billy White Shoes a- Johnson dance. Probably not a pretty sight to see. <laughs> oh, I was, Art 10 Martinez. Years, I was 10 or 11 years 10 old. 10 years old, Art Martinez doing the Billy White Shoes Johnson dance. I like the electric slide when the Houston Oilers, remember Ernest Givens and them? Oh, yeah. That yeah. incredible, was it Hakeem Jeffries, uh, Ernest Givens, Webster Slaughter? What a wide receiving core that was that Warren Moon had. And I think it was Ernest Givens used to do the electric slide after scoring a touchdown. That's when I first started to kind of pay attention to the antics after scoring. And then it was the Barry Sanders, hey, I scored a act like you've been there before. And he would literally just have an incredible 70-yard touchdown run making everybody on the defense look silly. And he would just nonchalantly go over the ref and just hand the football off. And that was it. Today, everybody makes a whole production and people probably practice and they hire dance coaches probably to help choreograph moves. And you have entire teams now kind of 
take uh, you know take part in these dances as well. Oh, they're, they're rowing the the boat in the in the end zone. Uh, the, it's was a it Tampa much. Bay. Yeah, it's a little much at times, but the waddle waddle to me was perfectly fine. It is bowl season in college football this week. Two games that matter on Friday. Do we actually care about these bowl games? And should players be playing in them? I want to get a bit into that next. The Rich Eisen Show. I'm Dan Schwartzman sitting in for Rich. Eisen Show, Dan Schwartzman in for Rich on this Tuesday. It is bowl week, really. A ton of bowl games all week long. Friday, of course, the two big ones. The college football semifinal matchups, Georgia against Michigan and Alabama versus Cincinnati. By the way, how funny is it that Alabama is trying to play the underdog here, right? Will Anderson's out there saying, oh, people disrespect us, blah, blah, blah. And I thought to myself at first, my gut reaction was, what are you talking about? You're a 13.5-point favorite. You're playing Cincinnati. It's the first non-Power 5 conference team to ever make the football playoff. And then I thought to myself, this is a brilliant tactic, most likely brought forth by Nick Saban. And here's why it's brilliant, okay? Cincinnati doesn't have the reputation of Michigan or Georgia. And I think for Alabama, the worry is, will the players to a point overlook Cincinnati thinking ahead to a potential rematch with Georgia, a team they beat in the SEC championship game? Because Georgia should beat Michigan. Georgia's a better team than Michigan. And maybe Nick Saban is using a strategy of saying, look, we're the underdogs against Cincinnati because everybody wants Cincinnati to win. They're the Cinderella story. And... People don't want us to win because they're sick and tired of us winning. So go out and show everybody that we belong here yet again, even with one loss. And let's go out and show them that we're the best team in the country with that number one seed. Again, hard to be the underdog when you are that number one seed. But I think that has to be the strategy that Nick Saban is using because of the fact he doesn't want his players to overlook lowly Cincinnati. By the way, a team that's won what? Like 24 of 25 games, their last loss, or the only loss in that stretch was to Georgia in last year's bowl game, and they lost on a last-second field goal. So it's clearly a good team. They went on the road to Notre Dame. They won at South Bend earlier this year. That's the signature win on the schedule. But for Alabama, to make sure players don't overlook Cincinnati, because if you do, by the way, they could beat you, I think what's being used is the reverse psychology of we're the underdogs. So let's go out there and show that we belong. Although I don't think I've ever seen an Alabama team, frankly, since Nick Saban took over, maybe once or twice in all these years that came out and didn't seem to know what they were doing or came out and you could tell was overlooking an opponent. Yeah, they've had games that you could consider clunkers, closer wins than they should have. But outside of Saban's first year when he got there and they struggled and he kind of assessed the talent level he had or lack of when he took over that program, you know, I mean, he's always had him prepared. That's why he's maybe the greatest college coach in the history of football. 
you can make that argument, and I would venture to say he is the greatest. And he's potentially on the verge of winning yet another national championship here, and it's not like he's slowing down. He keeps signing renewals to stay at Alabama. The money is great. He's making, what, like 10 million bucks? They worship him down there. People name their kids and their dogs after him. Never thought of Saban as being a good first name, but who am I to judge? And that's what it is. So those are the two big games on the bowl schedule coming up this week. You have other games because, look, bowl games, I guess, are lucrative, right? That's what it comes down to. Bowl games make money. Some of these bowl games have gotten canceled, though, because, unfortunately, schools have had COVID outbreaks and uh, other schools have just been like, look, you know what? We're too injured. We have too many transfers right now and enough COVID cases where we can't field an entire team. The byproduct in a negative manner of the college football playoffs has been it has made unimportant bowl games even less important. Like, I used to remember the Holiday Bowl had some jazz to it, right? Ah, it's the Holiday Bowl. Oh, the Sun Bowl. These were good games. These were games that you wanted to watch. Like, you would actually sit back and say, wow, I'm going to pencil in watching the Holiday Bowl next week. But not anymore, right? Like now it's, unless you're a gambler and that's the only reason why you're paying attention to these games is because you have money riding on it. Honestly, you're probably not watching. Do you care about UCLA versus 18th ranked NC State in the Holiday Bowl? Well, if you went to one of the schools, yes. If you are a die-hard college football fan that you'll turn on any game you don't care, sure. But I think for the average fan, because there's really no meaning in that game, unless, of course, you're gambling, you're probably not going to watch. 8 p.m. on a Tuesday, maybe during COVID you are because you can't go do anything. And if you do, it's like a whole production, right? You have to do this, you have to show that. I mean, at this point, it's it's do you even want to go out? So it's kind of made these games to a point where you just don't really care anymore, right? And it's for the kids. It's for the schools. They feel good about it. I feel good to let these kids have a last hurrah. Most of these kids do not go on to the NFL. So it's a last opportunity to play a college football game. And that's why watching a lot of these teams now like Boise State and Virginia, SMU, Hawaii, all these schools that have canceled playing in bowl games, I feel bad for the kids. Again, these are meaningless games, but I do feel bad for the kids because this was their last opportunity to play. Like, take Virginia, for instance. Bronco Mendenhall, their their head coach, abruptly said he is resigning, he's retiring. And this was going to be the last game he was going to coach. He wasn't moving on to another school, so Virginia wasn't about to say, hey, don't coach. They were going to let him coach the Fenway Bowl against SMU. And for some of the kids that he had recruited, brought in, this was the last opportunity for them as their seniors and to play for him. Well, obviously that got canceled. So I do feel bad for situations like that. But on the other hand, you know, when you're an NFL draft prospect, unless you're playing for a national championship, there's absolutely no reason to play in these games. And that's why Ohio State has, what, four players, four of their top players have decided not to play. And it's the freaking Rose Bowl. Like, when's the last time you heard of kids deciding not to play in one of the major bowls? It's the Rose Bowl, right? It's the most prestigious of the bowl games. 
But again, the college football playoffs have rendered any other bowl outside the three that matter that determine a national championship, the national champion, they've rendered them pointless, worthless, meaningless. And that's why for Ohio State, who are disappointed to be playing in a Rose Bowl, because this means they're not playing for a national title, it's easy for the kids to say, well, let me weigh my financial future as a potential NFL draft pick against playing in a meaningless bowl game against Utah, where I risk injury. And you know what I say? I agree 100% with the kids. As much as the Rose Bowl is prestigious and as a Big Ten player, you know, I worked with big Ten, guys who played in the Big Ten throughout my radio career. And the older generation would say, the goal for us, the Rose Bowl. Some would even tell you it's bigger than a national champion. You know, you, you, you get to the Rose Bowl, you play, you know, the best of the Big Ten, best of the Pac-12, back then it was a Pac-10. That was prestige. That was the big deal. It didn't matter if you were playing to finish third in the country or 10th. Or first, the Rose Bowl had cachet to it, but no more because it's now rendered just another bowl game with a fancy history that every couple of years becomes relevant when it's part of that process of determining a national champion. I remember Alabama a few years back in the Nick Saban era when uh, they were shut out of the college football playoff is one of the very few down years. And then they lost in a decent bowl against, I think it was Oklahoma. And a lot of the Big 12 fans are saying, ah, you see, SEC's overrated. And I had that discussion with friends of mine. And I'm like, listen, it's the SEC's not overrated. Honestly, for Alabama players, playing in that game meant nothing. Like, they didn't care. Those players are accustomed to playing for the national championship in the college football playoffs. And when they don't get into the college football playoffs, it's a disappointment to where they don't care. It doesn't mean anything to them. And they don't show up and play 100% because they're disappointed to be there. And I think for the Ohio State players, if the seniors or the juniors, the draft-eligible sophomores who are going to play on Sundays next year and make a lot of money, clearly if this was for a national championship, they would play in the game. But it's not. And that's why you have all the big names saying, you know what, love it, but I'm sitting this one out. Utah probably is now going to win the Rose Bowl. For them, this is the monument. For the Ohio State people, it's not. It's a disappointment, sadly, to be in the Rose Bowl. NBA season rolling along. What does it mean? Brian Mahoney writes for the AP, covers the NBA. He will join us next. I want his thoughts on Russell Westbrook's value to the Los Angeles Lakers. Is he a detriment in terms of them moving forward this year and winning something? It's a valid question. Forget the statistics. Brian Mahoney of the AP will answer that next. Dan Schwartzman in for Rich Eisen right here on the Rich Eisen Show on a Tuesday.